Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode of our Climate Breakdown podcast, your home for in-depth discussion and debate on the state of the climate. Climate Breakdown is offered to you by the Climate Expertise Center at the VU Amsterdam. My name is Mathieu Blondeel, I'm your host, and today we are once again recording in the studio of our very own campus radio. Last year, environmental scientists warned that six out of nine planetary boundaries had been broken because of human-caused pollution and destruction of the natural world. These scientists wrote that the Earth is now, quote-unquote, well outside the safe operating space for humanity. In other words, the environmental crisis that we're in goes well beyond merely climate change. And that's what we'll be talking about today, the linkages between the climate crisis and other crises that we find ourselves in. How can we understand these crises and what can we do to solve them or at least address them? And so in today's episode, we'll be focusing on on, uh, two elements, the global food system and biodiversity. Um, That also means that today is a little bit different. Our episode is broken up into two parts. Uh, What hasn't changed, of course, is that I'm joined by world-renowned experts in their field. In the first part, I'm joined by Christian Koch. Chris is an assistant professor of politics and governance of sustainability transitions at the Athena Institute of the VU Amsterdam. His research focuses on the political dynamics and policies of sustainable transformation in fields like food and agriculture. And for the second part of this episode, I'm joined by two guests. I'll be talking to Ina Lehmann, who's an assistant professor in governance of global biodiversity better at the Institute for Environmental Studies. And her research interests include the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity from local to global governance levels, as well as the various linkages between biodiversity and development policies. And for that second part, I'm also talking to Marije Schaafsma, who's an associate professor in environmental economics, also at the Institute for Environmental Studies here at the VU. She specialized in analyzing the well-being and welfare effects of ecosystem services changes using different valuation methods. I'm not entirely sure that I understand everything, but more than happy to find out uh, throughout our conversation uh, later in the episode. But first, of course, Christian Koch. Chris, welcome. Thank you very much, Michelle. Okay, so I've introduced you, Chris, as someone who does research on the global food system. Yes. Um, So perhaps we can start with you explaining to us what you mean by the global food system. Yes, of course. Um, and it's an interesting question because it's a, it's a difficult question. Um, so let me first start by introducing the concept of food systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the news, if you look at policy documents, this concept of food systems is really becoming um, hip and hot and uh, it's been used a lot. Uh, and that is quite new because originally we would talk about agriculture or about food consumption. But this notion of food systems as a whole means that we consider the interrelations between agricultural production, between distribution, and between consumption. So it is all the way from farm to fork. uh, And it helps us to understand the complexity of the system. And it also helps us to understand where in these systems we need to intervene in order to create some meaningful change. So it is really this idea of considering the relations between different elements. And then your uh, 
concept of global food systems. Yeah. That's a tricky one because what we see is that food systems are global in the sense that there are definitely connections between the way we consume food, for instance, here in the Netherlands and the way it is produced on the other side of the world. Uh, not only connections in terms of environmental effects or economic effects, but also social justice implications. Um, but at the same time, food systems are very local. Uh, so they are rooted really into maybe a region. Uh, they have ver various cultural, uh, contextual factors that are really important to take into account. So global, yes, but at the same time local. And I think that is also what makes it so difficult to grasp them and to see how we can um, yeah, govern them, basically. Yeah, all right. You, you already, that's really fascinating. And thanks for that, that very uh, good explanation. You already touched on a, a number of issues that, that I want to talk about later mm -hmm. about change and transformation and transitions, yes, but also yes. justice and injustices within uh, the system. Um, before we get into that, um, of course, this is a climate podcast, Climate yes. Breakdown. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the link between this global food system that you've just explained and the climate crisis that we're in? There are many. There yeah. are many links. <laughs> yeah, I um, can imagine. And, and I think maybe there are two links that I find most interesting or obvious. So the first link is that food systems contribute to climate change. Mm -hmm. So the way we have organized agricultural production, uh, the way how we have organized global food change and value chains uh, affects, for instance, um, a large part of, of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Um, so food systems affect climate change and they drive climate change. They also drive all kinds of other environmental issues, the loss of biodiversity, soil degradation, land use changes, etc. But at the same time, and that's something I, I think is a bit less uh, obvious when you hear the debates in, in science and in policy, is that food systems are also very much affected by climate change already. So, for instance, if temperatures rise, um, if changes happen in the amount of uh, precipitation or uh, regions get drier, it does something to the way we produce food. And we already see it happening that um, food systems become less resilient uh, because of climate change. So when you talk about transformation, you already introduced, those are two very good reasons absolutely. to change the way we have organized our food systems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I like this idea that there's this co-constitutive yeah. relationship, if you will, between yeah. the, the food system or the agricultural system affecting climate change, but climate change vice versa also affecting um, uh, global food production. Excellent, yes, really yeah. fascinating stuff. Um, of course, this is an episode with, in the backs of our minds, this idea of planetary boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. And so my question would be, okay, so there is a clear link between climate change and, and the global food system. Absolutely. But do you also see other environmental impacts uh, of the global food system in terms of land degradation, for example? Oh, yes. There, yeah. there are many there as well. And I think... Um, one of the reasons why I find food systems so interesting is precisely because this relation to the landscape, to ecology, it is so connected to soils, to, uh, to plants, to um, basically all these environmental uh, aspects that you also mentioned. Um, 
So yes, there are many issues. For instance, we use lots of uh, fertilizers um, yeah. that really, when you talk about planetary boundaries, that affects, for instance, nitrogen and phosphorus cycles. Mm -hmm. um, there are many parts in the world where we irrigate in ways that are not sustainable at all. So water cycles get disturbed. Um, we use lots of herbicides and pesticides. Yeah. Uh, only very recently, the European Commission said uh, we are going to extend the license for glyphosate use. Yeah, While we also know, or at least science points to the direction that it's not only dangerous for the environment, but it might also affect human health. Um, so there are not only links to environmental issues, but also very much to health and socioeconomic issues. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Think of the uh, triple burden of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. We have food systems that can provide lots of food for many communities around the world, but at the same time, there's still hunger. Mm -hmm. And we see the rise of obesity um, and non-communicable diseases as a result of consumption patterns. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. coming back to your point about what food systems are, yeah. if we apply this sort of lens, yeah. looking at the system as a, as a whole and seeing these interconnections, then we can also see how, for instance, consumption of food and health-related issues relate back to these environmental problems. Yeah. Wow, that, that's really fascinating stuff. And also slightly depressing, I would say. Perhaps, uh, but, uh, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> in, in any case, um, I mean, you're touching on, on some really crucial things here. I mean, uh, when you talked about fertilizers and, and glyphosate uh, or glyphosate? Glyph glyphosate. Glyphosate, I think, but I'm it's, sorry. It's a difficult yeah. one. It's yeah, a difficult yeah, one. I understand. <laughs> um, but for me, the question then becomes, okay, why does the commission continue to allow that? But mm -hmm. it pr probably has to do with power and power dynamics and politics. Um, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, so maybe before we delve into the politics of, of all of this, um, of course, what you touch on is is all about, well, justice and injustices yes. in this system. Yes. And I see that in your research coming back, this mm -hmm. word of justice, right? Yeah. So, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what we talk about again in, yeah. when we talk about food justice or justice in the, in the food system? Yes, absolutely. I think, I think it's a really important issue. And I think it's an issue that at least on the side of climate science, agricultural sciences, um, and those who have been calling for large-scale transitions or societal transformation, mm -hmm. uh, it had been neglected for a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and when you think about societal change, that is going to affect lots of people. Yeah. If you are going to say as a government or as a society, we need to get rid of um, intensive dairy farming, that does something to the farmers and the communities. Mm -hmm. um, if you are not taking action, that does something to other communities, yeah. vulnerable communities who already suffered from the consequence of climate change. So I think in recent decades or maybe even longer, uh, you see that all these scholars and activists who were concerned with justice, and they have been around for thousands of years, so that's yeah. not a new thing, right? Yeah. Um, but they have been integrating with this whole debate on, okay, but these transitions themselves, they need to be just. Yeah, we absolutely. need to make sure that they don't lead to more injustice. Yeah. We need to compensate the injustices yeah. that will inevitably, maybe, some people say, yeah. <laughs> happen yeah. if you organize such a large-scale transformation in your society. 
but also it's an opportunity to, you mentioned injustices. There are many injustices in the way that we have organized food systems now. Yeah. Think about the exploitation of labor. Uh, think about injustices regarding the damages done to the environmental world. Yeah. Um, and transitions or large-scale transformation is also an opportunity yeah. to yeah. make the world a bit more just. Yeah. Uh, and in that light, I think you see lots of, of scholars and, and activists and, and also policymakers now yeah. discussing justice. Yeah, um, yeah, really interesting. And uh, if I can add to that, this isn't something that is happening in the context of, of global north uh, versus global south justice and injustices. It's something that we're recording here in the Netherlands, of course. It's yeah. taking place, these debates here as well, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I think that... I mean, when you talk about the global north and the global south, um, there, looking at it from this justice injustice perspective, does make a lot of sense. Like, I mean, the injustices there uh, might be far greater, uh, or the effects on particular communities might be um, far greater than for some in the global north. Mm -hmm. So definitely the link between the global north and the global south is something that... Uh, needs much more attention yeah. from yeah. a justice perspective yeah. uh, but you're right also here yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if we can demarcate you know yeah. the, the systems uh, and yeah, saying we, we talk only about the netherlands well we know that lots of as as we discussed earlier on like these linkages right the way we produce food yeah. here is strongly linked to yeah. um for instance importing soy from yeah. south america yeah, so there are these links there but also here of course yeah just transformation, just climate action. Yeah. It's really important yeah. um, in, yeah, in, mean, in the Netherlands yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, so, I mean, it's clear that there are, I mean, the global food system is rife with environmental issues, climate issues, social issues, mm -hmm. uh, injustices, etc. So my question then becomes, okay, is this a bit, first of all, is this common knowledge <laughs> that it's a problematic <laughs> um, situation? And second, what makes it so difficult to transform this system? Ah, <laughs> if I had the answer, I... I <laughs> Probably wouldn't be working then, at the VIA as an no, assistant professor. The one, the one who has the answer to the, to the final question gets yeah. a Nobel Prize, I think. Yeah. Um, but it are important considerations to think about. Whether it's a common knowledge, I do not know. Yeah. I do think that it is knowledge that... Um, it is a bit intuitive. Mm, so yeah. if you ask citizens or farmers or uh, any other stakeholder what they feel or what they think about the food system or whether they are worried about the future, uh, about their own business perhaps, their own farm, but maybe about the system in general or their own livelihoods, then I think people will talk about justice-related issues. They mm -hmm. will talk about fairness, they will talk about the distribution of benefits and burdens. They will talk about whether they feel recognized, whether they feel that their voices are heard in policymaking or in developing innovations. Mm -hmm. And those are all aspects that relate to this broader concept of justice and just food systems. So I think, I'm not sure if the, the concepts are common knowledge, but yeah, I think yeah. the thinking about it is, is very Absolutely. naturally ingrained in the way we tend to talk about the future and we tend to talk about transformation. So let's make it more explicit then yeah. in research and in policymaking. I think that's the next step. Yeah. And the second question on what, what makes it so difficult. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think 
the complexity of the problems and yeah. the complexity of the system at hand. So looking at it from the system's perspective mm. might help you to see all kinds of interconnections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then, oof, where do you start, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if you have to change the whole system instead of one part of it, yeah. the challenge suddenly becomes exponentially more difficult. Mm -hmm. So one misconception about systems thinking is that it automatically means that if you intervene, maybe with policy or with research, um, it automatically means you have to change the whole system at the same Absolutely. time. That's not true. But you need to figure out where in the system you intervene mm -hmm. and if you intervene, how it relates to other parts. So that's one thing. Um, this complexity makes it difficult to find out where exactly you want to steer. Mm -hmm. And that for government is also very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think the second point you already mentioned, um, this issue of politics and power. Yeah. So that's we have organized systems in a way that they are quite stable, mm -hmm. which is generally a good thing. Mm -hmm. because it means they can be resilient to shocks yeah, uh, and, and global crises. And why that's a good thing in the case of food systems is, of course, because then we want to make sure that we deliver food security for as many people as we can. So mm -hmm. we need to make sure that agricultural production mm -hmm. um, can still keep going in yeah. times of crisis um, or shocks. So in a way, the stability makes sense. But the problem is we have another crisis, and this crisis is climate change. Yeah, and as I mentioned, it really affects also the performance of food yeah. systems, yeah. let alone their impact on, on mm. uh, the, the climate uh, uh, catastrophe. Yeah. So there's really this incentive to change. But then you see that there are all kinds of power relations, yeah. vested interests yeah, yeah. Um, that also rally against mm -hmm. radical change. And if they do not rally against radical change, then you also have these conflicts on where do we want to go? Which direction do we yeah, need yeah, to transform yeah. into? Yeah. Are we going for sustainable intensification? Yeah. Or are we going for agroecology? Yeah, 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 of course, absolutely. So, yeah, so it's, it's not only, I think, an, an issue of like politics in the traditional sense of parliaments and governments mm -hmm. deciding or lobbyists mm -hmm. uh, influencing uh, policy decisions but also the politics of how can we make sure that we empower communities to make these types of decisions yeah. in their local context, mm -hmm. aligned with mm -hmm. broader societal goals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of creating change. And I mm -hmm. think that's, that's where the tensions are right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Chris, you know that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an energy researcher. I, yes. I study energy politics also at the global level, and mm -hmm. I'm always struck with or at least by the the similarities by uh, between food security and energy security and these types of issues. Yes. And for me, listening to you now, I'm I'm immediately thinking again in perhaps more conceptual terms how food security and questions around food security that you just touched on are this constant struggle and trade-off and balancing act between three objectives that you're striving for. That's one, sustainability, mm -hmm. right? Second, affordability mm -hmm. of food. Yes. And third, security of supply. You want to make sure that we're able within that global food system that you can, um, well, provide food for, I don't know, 8 billion, 9 billion people that we have yeah. now. And it's mm -hmm. a very difficult trade-off, right? It is. It's an extremely difficult trade-off. And at the same time, and I, I wonder whether that's different in energy systems, because as you said, yeah. you work on energy, yeah. I have no expertise on the energy system, but um, it's not as much as a trade-off in food systems as it seems. Okay. You see policymakers sometimes saying, yeah, we cannot do all these sustainable uh, 
measures or we cannot make policy to accelerate transformation because it yeah. will make food more expensive and because it yeah. will lead to a decreased production and then we are no longer food secure. Yeah. But that is a false dichotomy. Okay. Um, and I think precisely because one of the reasons that I mentioned in the beginning, if we don't yeah. act now, yeah. if we yeah. do not take all the necessary measures to make our production more sustainable, it will not be as resilient and we will not be able to deal with these effects yeah. of climate change. Yeah. So I see, yes, it's trade-offs. Yeah. And they're often formulated as trade-offs as well. And of course, there are definitely some difficulties in aligning the goals. But I also see it as something that we should find synergies for. Mm. Precisely mm. because there's not really another way. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, fascinating. And like I said, there are a lot of similarities, but I'll stick to my definitely, role as definitely. an interviewer here. And I, I don't want to talk too <laughs> much about, talk about, uh, it about but energy yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, talking about these injustices, I want to continue a little bit because mm -hmm. you, in your writing, at least in your research, I saw that you talk a lot about democracy as well and democratization. Yes. Yes. I would imagine is then also part of that transformation, right? Absolutely. Yes. So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean um, in terms of food democracy? Is that something? Or? It's it's definitely something. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a concept that's been um, taken up as well in, in relation to a couple of developments, I would say. Um, but in the way that we use it, uh, and I think... I know uh, the article you're referring to. Yeah. Um, we talk about transition governance or governing large-scale sustainable transformation. And what we see is that if those governance efforts actually take place, yep. um, then it is often technocratic, yep. um, which means, for instance, that there are particular types of knowledge or values or perspectives that are not being taken into account. Mm -hmm. um, it also means if you look at the way policy systems, if mm -hmm. I can use the word system again, yeah, no, policy systems are organized, we see that a lot of what drives policymaking is this fundamental assumption for some reason yeah. that economic growth should be at the core of all types of innovation policies and other policies aimed at transformation. Um, but at the same time, we know that if that's your focus, mm -hmm. then you risk being hijacked by incumbent interests who mm -hmm. benefit from this economic growth, while we yeah. also know that, for instance, nature and many groups in society do not necessarily benefit. So those types of considerations have mm -hmm. led us to think about we should democratize transition yeah. governance more, yeah. which means we should move from technocratic expertise, yeah, opening up, being more democratic about the knowledge and values you include yeah. uh, by including also insights and perspectives yeah. and also the, um, the values of, of farmers, of citizens, of yeah. marginalized communities. Yeah. Secondly, this change of uh, from, from focusing only on economic growth to being open towards post-growth strategies. Yeah. And thirdly, also open up to nature. Yeah. Um, when we talk about democracy, it's often a very human, very societal okay. um, yeah. process or a concept or whatever you like to call it. Um, 
but we are not alone in this world, right? So we also have nature and the world itself. So can we think of creative ways of making those voices yeah. heard as well? Uh, can we take nature into account better when we make yeah. policies that affect yeah. nature and ecosystems? So that's the third way in which we, we yeah. say you could democratize transition governance more. Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful philosophical question, I imagine, as well. Does, does <laughs> but how to do it? <laughs> does nature have <laughs> yeah, a voice yeah. or should nature yeah. have a voice um, in politics? But yeah, I mean, fascinating stuff. And that kind of leads me to my next question that I wanted to ask you, because, I mean, it speaks to the, the very transdisciplinary nature of your work, mm. if you will, in terms of you right. not just sitting in, in, in the academic ivory tower, right? Mm -hmm. But you engaging with industry, I guess, to a certain extent, but also. primarily also policymakers and farmers themselves. Yes. And what do you think the value of that is, of doing this transdisciplinary research? Well, I think to answer this question, I will go back again to the very beginning, which oh, is this, this concept of a food system. Yeah. So... Imagine this really complex system. There are mm. companies in there, there are farmers, there is policy, there is financial regulation, there are all kinds of different values, mm -hmm. there is ecology, there is the agricultural products, there are yeah. supermarkets, right? It's a really complex system. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to understand that system from your ivory tower, yeah. good luck to you, <laughs> right? I mean... Yeah. This, this illusion that we as scientists are the only ones who have relevant knowledge yeah. and expertise um, is, I think, something that would obstruct um, us understanding systems and us being able to transform them. So one reason why I think these transdisciplinary approaches where we include, indeed, industry or business, but definitely also farmers or citizens or patients when it's about health systems, mm -hmm. When we, when we include those stakeholders mm. uh, who are part of this system in research and innovation, mm. so not only in answering our questions in interviews yeah, or attending focus groups, but also in setting the problem, yeah. in defining what the problems are, what the knowledge needs are, yeah. and in developing together solutions, then it helps us to better understand the system, which also helps us to design solutions that are better fit to local contexts. Mm. And that, yeah, might actually lead them to some kind of meaningful change. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one big argument that that scholars invoke uh, when they stress the need for transdisciplinary research. Yeah. And the other one, I think, is a democratic one. Yeah. So if you include farmers in thinking about the future of food systems mm -hmm. and in addressing uh, specific and important knowledge gaps. And in helping them together with policymakers, together with researchers, to overcome some of the challenges that they face in implementing sustainable practices, mm -hmm. that also makes sense from this normative argument. Yeah. Of course, because they are affected yeah. by the decisions taken, yeah. uh, it leads to more legitimacy of your yeah. intervention. Yeah. So there's this whole plethora of arguments that that um, that are used to. Yeah, to, to argue why why this transdisciplinarity might help. Yeah. But maybe, and I'm anticipating a next question, I'm yeah, not sure. Um, but <laughs> I what think we you do, are. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do not know yet fully mm -hmm. is the exact types of impact that it yields. Yeah. So is this really 
a more effective way of realizing transformation. Yeah. We think so. There are studies that emphasize the impacts. Yeah. There are studies that emphasize uh, all the benefits mm. and also the challenges of these types of processes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we are still in the same system. Yeah. So maybe it needs a bit more time. Yeah. Maybe we need to intensify these transdisciplinary efforts but time will tell whether it is indeed yeah. uh, the way yeah, forward the way for, forward, for creating this change. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me build a bit on, on one word that you used um, in your explanation, and that's this idea of normativity. And, and ah, uh, yes. I mean, I'm under the impression that you, of course, and you're explaining it extremely eloquently, that you have some normative considerations or drivers um, behind your research and the work that mm. you do. And I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. And it's something <laughs> that I've asked other, other people yeah. in, 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 um, that we've interviewed for this podcast show as well, uh, because you're all extremely engaged. Of course, you have your ideas of what ought to be, what should be, mm -hmm. uh, I imagine. How would you respond to, uh, to a critic who says, well, that's not the role of a scientist? and you're stepping out of bounds, and the only thing that you have to do is observe and mm -hmm. analyze uh, critically, of course, but influencing mm -hmm. is not your job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a really difficult issue, I think, for many scientists yeah. uh, that work on sustainability issues. Mm -hmm. I would first probably ask a counter question. <laughs> have we ever been objective? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. No, no, no. But, but, <laughs> I mean, that's just that a devil's is, advocate. But it's, it's a <laughs> because excellent that, point. Because yeah. in that question, there's the assumption that scientists, for some reason, have been these objective observers only looking at the world and not influencing it in any way. Yeah. Um, which I think you could... Uh, of course, there's all kinds of degrees yeah. of influence. And I think mm -hmm. for especially some of the natural sciences, this is a more traditional role mm -hmm. that comes naturally... And it is also something very close to reality. Mm -hmm. But for the more social sciences or engaged sciences, I think we have always been um, in a way connected to the topics that we study. Mm -hmm. And I think what you see in times of these really complex issues, scientists have written reports for decades. Yeah. And the reports end up in drawers. So that's one reason to try and find different ways of engaging as a scientist. And I think another reason is that, as I mentioned, if we try to understand the systems really, then we have to be engaged because there's no way of understanding the system if you are all the way up in your ivory tower. Yeah. You have to engage, you have to be empathetic, you have to understand um, by being there and by engaging with the stakeholders. And does it then mean that whatever you as a scientist want or feel or think um, is the way that the system will move forward? No, I don't think so. So I do think we have to be very clear about different roles that we can take up as scientists. Yeah, yeah. So even in transdisciplinary research, yeah. there are traditional research roles. Yeah, absolutely. There are project management roles. There are roles for scientists, and this is difficult, in facilitating discussions and debates between the different stakeholders. Mm. Because, yes, we are part of the system as scientists, but we are also only one part of the system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it also means, as scientists, we have to sometimes take a step back, 
let go of some of our power that we might have yeah. in steering the direction of research mm -hmm. and leave it up to the people yeah. who are in the systems, who have the expertise, the local knowledge, yeah. Um, and yeah, also the people and communities that will be most affected by the results of our research. Mm -hmm. So it requires us also to take yeah. a step back. Okay. Let go of the power sometimes. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. And um, I, I wholeheartedly better uh, agree with that answer. But it's difficult. I yeah, mean, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I fully understand and I struggle myself as well. Yeah. Like yeah. when when is it legitimate to intervene in a process and when yeah. not? Yeah. Um, can you, as a scientist, if you work with policymakers, right? Yeah. To which degrees can you can you have an influence there, or are you just facilitating? I think these are questions that we should all ask ourselves, and we should, mm. as a community of scientists, also be yeah. reflexive about, okay. make it explicit. Yeah. Because we are involved in society anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, we're nearing the end of our conversation. Um, I've got a couple of more questions. Um, so perhaps uh, one. So you talked about the complexity of the system and that, okay, when you formulate solutions, you have to think about uh, causes and consequences. Mm -hmm. um, are there a couple of solutions that you think should be prioritized or Oof. policies that you think are the go-to issues that can help make our system more secure, more sustainable, more affordable? Oof, oof! Again, again, Nobel Prize material. <laughs> but uh, I have, I have some ideas. Yeah, I have some share. ideas, and maybe some of them are a bit more on the, um, yeah, I wouldn't say theoretical, but more on the design of policy. Yeah, so, so yeah. that could be one way forward. So, what we know is that it's really important to engage local communities in the directions of that they want to take, yeah. with regard to transformation in that local context. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we need these targets. We need to have targets on carbon reductions. Yep. We need to have targets on how do we as a society want to tackle obesity? Yep. Uh, how do we want to tackle uh, the loss of biodiversity? Yep. So in, type, in terms of the types of policies, um, we see that these mission-oriented mm -hmm. uh, policy measures where the national government or, for instance, the EU through a green deal, yeah. sets out the targets and the yeah. direction. Mm. But then the way local governments or local communities meet those targets, yeah. that we can organize very much bottom up because there's lots of energy yeah. on the ground. That's yeah. also something we experience. Use the energy from the initiatives on the ground, yeah. from farmers who really want to move forward, yeah. from citizens who really want to move forward. I think that could be a very powerful leverage point yeah. if you take that into account in the way that you design policies. Yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. And another thing is that we need the reform of the common agricultural policy okay, in yeah. Europe. I, I was going to ask about the one. EU policies <laughs> as well. Okay, that's yeah. good. So you're not all that happy with the current uh, EU food production policies. I'm thinking about, of course, uh, the CAP, of course. Yes, the uh, Common Agricultural Policy. Yeah, yeah, but also, I guess, then the farm-to-fork strategy that has been formulated. What's interesting about the farm-to-fork strategy is that, this is my outsider perspective, Please. it's not that much coupled to the Common Agricultural Policy. Okay. Farm-to-fork is mostly 
part of the directorate generals okay. for health okay. for instance and, yeah. and research and innovation and there is yeah. also nature there but agriculture where there's this huge amount of money yeah. going into the common agricultural policy if i'm not mistaken still the largest expense uh, I think so. I think so. Definitely in the EU budget. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't quote me on this, but I think yeah. it's still the largest. Yeah. Um. So what could really help there? Mm -hmm. And this is interesting because you see that there are these conflicts also on the policy level yeah. between the domain of agriculture and yeah. between the domain of health and between the domain of innovation, which yeah. in Europe is very progressive, yeah. and between, for instance, nature. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to make food policies that work, yeah. you need to integrate. Yeah. You need to have a common food policy instead of a common agricultural policy, yeah. and you should create policy coherence. Okay. So it cannot be the case that one policy advocates for um, practices, farming practices that are exactly the practices that we want to phase out, yeah. while another policy rewards other types of actions. Yeah. Policy incoherence, that's not something we want, but I do think um, that one way of tackling it could be to reform the common agricultural policy into a common food policy. Mm. So then you have this systems, and we come back to it again, you yeah. have the systems perspective. So it's not only about agriculture, but you mm. acknowledge the relations yeah. with consumption and with the environment. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's, that's that already could, that very, could be very, one thing. Good. And very good. Very This is not my own idea. Yeah. This, is, this is an idea that, um, that floats around in... in Academic, uh, circles, academic, academic and policy and circles NGO, as well. Yeah, policy circles. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Okay, all right. Then, um, well, I think we're nearing uh, the end of our conversation. I have one question left. Mm -hmm. um, an important one, though. Oh. And that is, having heard everything that you've said today, fascinating stuff. All the problems, all the issues, but also the solutions mm -hmm. that you've just formulated. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? <laughs> um. I'm going to give an answer that you might not like in this uh, context because I mean, I'm not I'm going to choose. I'm going to say yeah. I'm both. Okay. And it depends on not only my mood and the weather, <laughs> but also on the the specific topic. Yeah. And I think when I'm being very reflexive, sometimes I'm really pessimistic. Yeah. I read the new IPCC report. Yeah. I read the news uh, only last week, I think, the United Nations warning for 2.5, 2.9 degrees mm. uh, of mm. global warming. But then I talk to farmers. Then yeah. I talk to my colleagues. Yeah. Then I see all the beautiful things and all the energy um, that is there in our society yeah. to create a better future. Yeah. And then I'm optimistic again. Yeah. So I go back and forth a bit. But I do think that as sustainability scientists, climate scientists, um, scholars of transformation, we almost have an obligation to remain maybe even naively optimistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if we are already um, giving up, yeah. then, then what's next? So we should be very critical, um, we should press, we should do more science, put more facts on the table, we should also engage, we should be very critical of governments taking wrong decisions, but we should also remain a bit optimistic, because there's no other way. Absolutely. Christian Koch, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much.